2: What's up, everybody? I feel like this is going to be a running theme in my intros, but that's not a bad thing, you know? I want to say a huge thank you from all of us here at Team Huey for all the love on the pod. The numbers and the reviews have been dope. So please keep doing what you're doing. Rate, review, and subscribe. It makes everything nice. Okay, time to get comfortable again because I got one of them long episodes for you this week. This one you've been asking for on Twitter and Facebook. So I'm excited to bring you this conversation with my man, DJ Uncle Mike. Me and Mike go way back uh, to when he signed my band at EMI. He was a uh, vice president of A and R. Uh, he also uh, worked back on uh, Epic Records and did marketing promotion there in the metal category. And he played a big part in uh, in the Fun Loving Criminals just getting over. Now Mike is a legendary New York DJ as well, working the decks at the hottest night nice spots in town, and the star of a modern day spaghetti western remake, which he tells us a little bit about as well. You're going to want to pay attention here because this guy goes deep into exactly how FLC got signed, the stories of our first tour supporting U2, and how I wanted to wave to America along the way. Uh, he also shares about the time Joe Strummer caught me and my band Half Dressed after a show, which turned into a pretty great night out, uh, and what Sharon Osbourne is really like. Man, there's so much going on in this pod, I can't really summarize it, so all I have to say is like, please enjoy this dude Uncle Mike, aside from being one of my dearest friends in the world is one of the most important people in rock and roll music history. Please enjoy Huey Off The Record with DJ Uncle Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. So that's good. this is good for you, right? Yeah, let me just check levels. You're, you're always very hot, Uncle Mike.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and uh, we get hot, we get hot. You know
2: what I'm saying? <laughs> that's what I'm
1: saying, man. It's great to talk and to Jerry, you, man. Jerry, Jerry Reed, you know, uh, Jerry Reed. As he as he once said in his song, "When you're hot, you're hot, and when you're not, you're not." That's true, man. That's true. I loved him. He he played.
2: Uh, he was in Smoking the Bandit, man.
1: That's right, the Snowman yeah, coming. That, yeah, the Snowman,
2: <laughs> and you know, no one got that. That he was called Snowman, and he stayed up all the time and drove a truck across the country. No one got the cocaine connection, man.
1: Ah, uh, I just got it now. <laughs> really, yo, oh, man.
2: <laughs> you told me something funny one time about cocaine. You said, "Yeah, I did it once for ten years."
1: <laughs> uh, my line, my line about cocaine is people go to I go, I did cocaine in the eighties once for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I guess
2: it's weird because you see people out at the clubs and things. So I got a little. Bit oh yeah, off. and I don't, I don't know what, what, what are kids doing now? What are they doing? Are they just drinking. Smoking weed?
1: No, you know, what, you know what? I'll tell you what. It's just like when we were younger. People go out and everybody does something different. You know what I mean? But in general, there are still things out there that people imbibe in. Um, as Lenny said one time, when I was doing a TV show with him, and it was uh, the, the, the uh, moderator was asking about drugs. Lenny goes, people do drugs because drugs make people feel great. Now, this is both legal and illegal drugs. You know, what I mean, it makes you feel great, but it's a mass and it's a crutch and ultimately it's a burden. And then it's a monkey on the back at some point. Um, then, listen, all people are different. Some people can handle it. You know what I'm saying? And some people can't. It's good for some people, it's not good for others. I've done my
0: things, and then you live and you realize this is good for me or this is not good
1: for me. And hopefully, you know, figure out it's not good for you and die. You yeah, know but, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, the
2: bad bit, yeah. So you're chilling on, uh, what is it? we're talking the east side of Manhattan, you're, you're chilling at your crib, right?
1: You no, know, upper east side. Yeah, no, yeah. New York City, just like I pictured it, you know. Dude, yeah. when I met you,
2: luckily I met you after you had stopped doing cocaine, because I can't imagine you on cocaine. It would just be completely bananas, because you're a high-energy guy anyway.
1: Yeah, it sort of made no sense. I'd be, and like, everyone else would do cocaine, and then um, they'd be all twitchy and bugging out, and I would just sit there like, uh, <laughs> uh and, and, and. And not move, and not move and be like frozen, you know. And be like, <laughs> and it was it was an ugly sight, I got to tell you. Oh, and uh, you know, right? And, and I'll tell you what. So anybody who's out there and does what they do, you know, it's your life. You do what you do. You experiment. You live. You, you live. You die. You you know. You buy. You try. And hopefully, you don't freaking cry. You know. But ultimately. Um, you take your life in your own hands when you do these things. I know there's a whole thing now where they're cutting cocaine because they always would cut it with something they'd put extra in it. It was like, like putting ice in your drink. Yeah, right? no, that's, gotta, exact, it's so that's cool exactly, color. that's a great concept.
2: Put, that's a great, yeah, that's the good analogy.
1: Like, there's, there's the coke. I think you put ice in the drink, so it sort of dilutes the initial strength of some people like you know, scotch meat, where it's just scotch, whatever. Mm. Some people like scotch on the rock, so it gets a bit diluted yeah, and a yeah. easier to take. Um, obviously, when they're trying to cut the cocaine, they're trying to make more money and put things in that cost less. And what I've been hearing is that they're putting fentanyl in the cocaine now what? to give it a spike. You know, read, everyone go online, read up about this. It's not it's fake so news, this, it's... Is real, this is real shit. And so you think you're doing cocaine, somebody gives you a bump, and really, it ends up being all this other stuff that you didn't know going into your body and affecting you. Now, fentanyl is, what, 100 times more uh, strong than uh, oxycodone and heroin? It's about 150 to 100 times stronger. So imagine, and then it's not even cocaine. So it's like, here's a scotch. And you drink it, and then it's like oh, no, here's some drain cleaner. And that's what you really drink. You're like, ah. It's just, you don't really know. Mike, I got. I mean, you,
2: I mean, I look at it this way, right? Those, I guess you call it, a medicine is made by a company for people who have like end of life kind of pain, like really serious pain, right? But yes, but exactly. does but doesn't heroin, or I should say, doesn't like morphine or opiate based prescription drugs do the same shit? Or is this like we need something a hundred times stronger than that? I don't know if we do. I think these companies are at fault by just coming up with these fucking stupid ideas. Like, let's make something fifty times or hundred times stronger than than uh, morphine or opiate based drugs.
1: Why? See, I think the whole concept is is exactly what you said, which is when you are in such pain and that pain is not going to stop, yeah. and you're just die- and you're just going to end up dying anyway. You know, you take, they made these drugs for those people who have no quality of life and are in in such pain, like constant. That's why something has to be about a hundred times more strong than the heroin or the morphine. So, you know, for somebody like that, who's, they're dying, they're in such pain, they, they, you know. (laughs) This is fucking depressing. This is fucking depressing. Mike, this is depressing the fuck out of me, bro. (laughs) I know, I know. But the point, is, okay. So the point is, if somebody gives you something, you never know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just don't know what it is. So it's like you know, buyer beware. User, user be- use beware. Yeah, man. It's, um, it's like, I remember taking some pills that were supposed to be Quaaludes in the early '80s, and they stopped making Quaaludes, and it ended up. I was like, this ain't a Quaalude, and I was out of it. I'm like, what the fuck was in that? I never will really know what the fuck was in that um, because there was no regulations and stuff like that. But even even from your drug companies and your pharmacy, just because you got it from a pharmacy, you take it, you take it uh, with the directions doesn't mean it's not going to have all the side effects, all the horrible side effects. That that that's a whole other thing. We'll, we'll, we'll talk like South Park Okay, Kids, drugs are bad. Okay, word word is born. Drugs are bad. Well, Yo, but- you know what? Listen. When I was 18, long time ago, if you told me not to do something and something was bad, I'd tell you to go fuck yourself. And I don't (laughs) want to listen to you. I I was going to do whatever I was going to do. And that's how you live life. You take take your life in your own hands every day. You suffer the consequences of your choices. You hope your choices are good. You hope that your family and friends are, are there to maybe help you through bad choices. Or, you know, if you're lucky, you can learn, unfortunately, through the misery of others. You know, like, we watched a bunch of people that we knew die, and then we said, hey, I'm not going to do that. You know, yeah. so well, this- it's unfortunate that they had to die, but they died for, hopefully, our intelligence to maybe not make the wrong choices. So, yeah, it's really depressing, but, yo, everybody, whatever you do... Watch it, because you just don't know. You just don't know.
2: All right, now I want to get to a couple of things on this. I wanted to talk about back when we first met, because you have you have the most awesome crib. I remember going to your house, and you have, like, the, the plaques on the wall. Like, I'm lucky enough to have plaques uh, from my band that you signed. That's the thing. People need to understand that you were the one that gave me my record contract 21 years ago, man.
1: When I got to your house... <laughs> It was a team effort there, I'd say. I mean, I feel like I was the point person. I was the guy that, you know, um, was there for you um, during the whole process and and, and trying to pull together. And when I heard your music, uh, it was something that really made me just go, wow, this is fucking good. This doesn't sound like all the other stuff that's out there. You know, because at some point, you see, um, I, I, uh, my buddy Scott Coding, who used to work for Rick Rubin, yeah, I know. He, would, he was friendly with Dom DeLuca, and, uh, so he goes, yo, Dom's a good kid, you should hire him as your scout, so I hired him as, like, my scout, so like, once a week, the guy would come in with a pile of tapes and listen to stuff, and I would say most of it was stuff that was just about to be signed anyway, like, here, here's this tape or that tape, or he already knew that, someone at MCA or Columbia was going to sign it. And it was all similar things, you know, it was all the certain sounds, you know, of, of that time, you know, you think of 1995 and whatever was going to be big, like the next year. And that whole thing that was big in the last couple of years. So it was that sort of grungy post-grunge sort of, you know, punky sort of thing coming in. And I remember you brought your tape in and, he comes in with about a dozen tapes, sits down at my desk, and starts playing each one, hands me each one. Here you go. I put it in, and I listen a little bit, and I'm like, okay, and that was it. And then I listen to another tape, and I'm like, okay. About, about ten tapes in, I listen to everything, and I'm like, it just sounded like everything else, you know? And it was all right. It wasn't like these things were horrible. It just... Nothing really, you know, what do you say? Nothing really gave me a boner. You know, it's <laughs> ear boner. You know, yeah, like, no, I know. You're, you're
2: boners, man. I hear you, bro. You know, you but hear, yo, you hear something, you go,
1: oh my gosh, this changed my life. No, keep and in mind, keep in mind, ahead, bo- go, dude, check it out. B-
2: b- before you heard that tape, the reason we gave Dominic the tape is because he said, yo, guys, uh, he saw us play with Andrew that one time. We did her birthday party. It was our only gig. And he was like, dudes, give me a cassette, and I'll I'll play it on the on the night. You know, I'll play it when I DJ. So you were like, oh, shit, yeah. cool, man. You, you'll play our music out to the club that we work in. That's dope. And then we didn't know he's was going to take it to you. That was the funniest thing. We went in the studio and actually worked on it because we didn't have no demo or anything. We didn't even try to make a demo. We just made a record, but, like, at our
1: house. You, you know, you were forefront of making your own independent recordings, you know? Well, that was the and idea, yeah. That, that independent recording ended up in Dom's hands and ended up in a pile of about a dozen tapes in my office. And Dom comes in, he plays, well, you know, here's this, here's that, here's this, here's that. And everything I heard, like I said, didn't really give it to me. And then I'm like, is that it? He goes, yeah. I go, what's that? He goes, what? That other tape, what tape? That tape that's sitting there that you didn't play. Oh, that's some guys that I worked with at the limelight. And I go, oh, well, can I hear it? He's like, "Uh, uh, uh." okay, yeah. And I put it in, and it goes on, and I'm like, yo, this is really good, dude. I actually get this. This is great. Oh, I work, I work for these guys. And I'm like, it's fucking really good, bro. This is not like everything else I heard. This is had, it, it had a different sound and a different vibe, and it made me excited. And I said, hey, can we do these guys play live? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's go see them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, this dude is like, like the reluctant February, scout. February 1985. I mean, not 1995. 1995. Mm-hmm. February 1995. We go to the limelight and it's in the main room and you guys played a show. And I watched it and was like, yo, this is really good once again. <laughs> this doesn't oh, matter man. like anybody else. This is something different and I really like it. So. I went back to work the next day, and I, I reported to the president of the company, David, and I said, hey dude, this is really good, I heard this band, they're great. He goes, do they play live? Yeah, let's, let's go see them the next time they play. Okay, so we brought them up, and you guys were playing two weeks later up in the uh, VIP room. Oh yeah, the chapel, Yeah, I remember that game. Apple, and you guys played a show and once again. It was really good. I remember Corky Corsione was there. He was DJing Mike Corky. Yeah, yeah, Corsion. Mike Corsione. My man. Mike Corky Mike Gun Corsione. And uh, he was there and he was like, yo, these guys are good, man. Yeah. So uh the boss comes over to me and he goes, let's go meet them. Okay, so we bum rushed backstage. I was like, hey, guys, how you doing? I'm Mike, you and I were dumb. Hey. And uh, the boss goes, Do you guys, I remember the boss notes to you guys do you guys want to make a record? Yeah, yeah. And we like, yeah. He goes, yeah. And, and then, and then he looks, the boss man looks at me, and the boss man looks at me and goes, okay, Mike, uh, it's on you. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and that was it. So I basically was the point person He came in the studio once or twice, said tweak this, tweak that, you know. And But I was there the whole time and the whole process, and then through getting management, through getting the album covers, and mm-hmm. through going and playing little gigs, and uh, you know all that sort of stuff. Um, That's, you know, dude, so I, I ended up being the A and R guy. Yeah, man. Joe, uh, I just want okay, to pump the
2: brakes. Pump the brakes, dude. You're rolling over stuff that I think is really important, man. Like when you when ahead. you first got with us, and it was really interesting. We came. I remember him breaking out the business card, and I looked at it, and I thought I saw it wrong because it said president and CEO. So I was like, why, why would he be both? You know what I mean? I just thought that in my mind. And then I looked back at him. He's like, hey, do you want to make a record? And like I looked at it fast. I was like, yeah, hell yeah. But then we didn't have a manager. We didn't have anything. We had no fucking clue to what we were supposed to do. And you were the one that pretty much held our hand through the whole fucking process, dude. That's why you're family, man. You're my uncle, dude. You put, you You yanked me out of what I was doing and was like, yo, here, do some cool shit. And you helped us get it all together like we didn't have a manager we like a lot of times it, like I, I think for a long time you kind of like were a pseudo manager when we were doing meetings and stuff you were like "Yo, the guys don't want to do this kind of shit I remember that I was like oh my, you know I mean you were helping us out on all types of fronts man
1: uh, that, that was what was that's what there was that had to be done um and you had to deal with so many people and interact with so many people and somebody's got to stand up for your rights. <laughs> so awesome. it was a matter, it was really a matter of looking out for you guys and making sure that nobody fucks with you and does the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and organizing it so and to go forward every day, you got things accomplished. And, and, and it was a learning process for me. It was like, you know, it was something that I never did before on that level. So as I was doing it, I was learning. But the main thing was, hey, I gave a shit. I was psyched about it, and that's what you got to do. You know, you you get psyched about something, you give a shit, and then you make it happen. And hopefully, uh, uh, you know, things work out, and things worked out nice. And I'm so proud of you guys because you know, 20 years later, 21 years on, 22 years on, you're still doing it. Plus, you're doing more. But you know, the following criminals still exist. Still make music. Yeah. Still entertain people. Still change lives. Still, you know, excite people. And uh, that's you know, it's, it's great. It's amazing. You know, who, who would have thought when when uh, we first met? And I remember you guys, man, it was like no money. You guys were working at the clubs for like minimum scrub wage. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, like like answering phones or schlepping ice. Or overcharging Puffy a dollar for every beer, you know, shit like that. <laughs> I remember later on we were hanging with Puffy at that
2: place on seventeenth Street off of Fifth Avenue and he stole your lighter, your bic lighter. Oh
1: Dorsey, Dorsey. Dorsey.
2: I was like I was like sitting there and you're like and Puff's like, Hey Uncle Mike, you got you got a lighter. What's up, man? I was like, What's up, dude? And he takes your lighter and then we had to leave. And you were like, "Oh, Puffy, can I have your lighter? And what he, he, oh, he uh, God,
1: I, actually, actually, the way the way it went was: so you bring me to Dorcia. Place places like fabulous, great club, you know, really cool. And our girl Jessica Rosenblum, God bless her, she's yeah. awesome, yes, yeah, sure always took care one. of us, always made sure that we were treated well. Yep. I mean, really yep. a wonderful person. And so we're in there, and you got us this great seat, so we're hanging out. And then, like, Puff comes in, Puff, Jay-Z, his whole posse, and they come in, and they're in, like, the section next to us. Yeah. And I feel like, and, like, I see it, and it's like, oh, cool, there you go. So I'm minding my own business. We're over here. We're doing our thing, you know, <laughs> and our thing is what we do. <laughs> uh, I feel a tap. I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I hear, hey, you got a light? And I barely look up. I just sort of, like, yeah, and I grab a light a red lighter, out of my pocket, and I hand it up and it goes away, and then I'm on my, you know, we're doing our thing, we're doing our thing, about an hour later, his whole posse, like the whole world just starts going down and leaving, and I see him (laughs) walking down, and I see him in front of me, and I'm thinking, fucking guy got my lighter, so I go, I I look at him, and I go, yo Puff, I don't want to stress you or nothing, but you got my lighter, and he looks at me, and and his face changes like, oh, yeah, and he puts his hand in his pocket, puts his hand in his pocket, and he comes out, he's got five lighters, five big <laughs> lighters of different colors in his hands, and... He's the lighter uh, thief. Like, oh, Puffy is the bad. lighter thief. Mine's the red one, mine's the red one, and he hands me the red one, and gives me a pro hug, and he left, and I'm laughing, like, you know, everyone's like, "Yo, oh, you asked him for the lighter back, I'm like... Yeah, of course. It's, you know, when he's scared, I mean, the guy's a human being. He's not going to punch yeah. me in the head for asking him for the lighter. <laughs> but it was Puffy's, really Puffy's a cool guy, though. Like, Puffy's cool, man. A he's a good dude. He gave me my lighter back, gave me a bro hug. It's not like he meant to steal it. It's not like he's sitting there plotting, I'm going to steal this this crazy bearded dude's lighter. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like that. It's like sometimes you have a lighter and by habit, you put it in your pocket and you move on with your day. And at the end of the day, you've got a couple of lighters, you know, um, <laughs> you know it, it's really, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, a, you know, criminal intent thing, but it was really funny. But he was, like I said, he was nice. He gave it back, gave me a hug, gave me a shake, you know, it's all good. So. <laughs> well,
2: you, well, anyway, I don't know where we were going with this, but I, I, but, but before you signed us, you signed Fun of the Criminals, when you, before you were working at EMI, you were you were like, the thing is, I got to your house. That's the I think that's where I was going, right? So you, yeah, you have the coolest apartment, man. Well, so I get, right. Yeah, you have the Go Records on the wall, and it's like you have Ozzy Osbourne. You got Rage Against the Machine. You got Pearl Jam. I'm like, who the fuck? What the fuck? And I remember hanging out, and everybody loves you, though, dude. Like, if we, when we see those dudes, like, I remember you sort of took me to, to Motorhead that time, and Lemmy was like, whoa! Rah! I mean, dudes show you all this love, and then I realized this dude's a legendary status before I even met
1: him. You were You were doing promo, right? I did promotion marketing for, uh, what what was my title at Epic? It was Director of uh, Metal Marketing and Promotion. Metal. Which basically meant, meant, you know, taking care of radio stations, these old things that they used to play uh, music on, these things called radio stations. Um, (laughs) I know. I
2: do that that work every once in a while,
1: dude. I know, I know. These old old things called radio stations. And uh, it's funny because... Radio. That was it. Now you have a lot of other things. You have radio, but you have all these other internet choices uh, to expose music. But back then, it was just like you know, if you didn't hear it on the radio, you didn't hear it. You know. Oh yeah. But then they were going for the clubs. You know. So I would go down to the limelight. Would say the new Rage Against the Machine record it was out like for a week. You know, or. It's the first single, uh, three weeks before it was out, Killing the Name. And I brought it up to Mike Corceone, who's the DJ. And I was like, yo, dude, check it out. This is a new band we got. You know, play it. So he was cool. He gave it a spin. And then every week he would play it. And he would tell me every week, he goes, yo, I play this every week. And I'd come up to the DJ booth you know, who the fuck was that? That was unbelievable. So that's when you know you have something. When you play it, when you play it, on the radio, and you get uh, you get requests, or you play it in a club, and people go to the DJ booth and go, "Who is this? This is fucking great!" And um, so that's what we would do. We had bands; they made records. I was lucky enough that the a guys that I worked with signed some real quality bands that I was able to work because at some point you're as good as what you're handed. You know, so if somebody hands you a piece of shit, you're promoting a piece of shit. If somebody hands you uh, something amazing, you're promoting something amazing. Sometimes not, sometimes it's not obvious yet. You know, I mean, one day at work, they handed me a tape and they said, listen to this band. The guys used to be in a band called Mother Love Bone. They sold about 50,000 records. We think they can do about that. Uh, We'll see you in about 10 days in a meeting. And uh, you could talk about what you could do with it in your format. And I took that tape home, listened to it. That was the Pearl Jam record 10, the first album, and heard it. It was like, yo, this is really good. Holy shit. So, like, not like I'm a a genius, not like I could have heard that and said, oh my God, this is the next thing. But once Michael Goldstone signed them and it went and they made the record and then it was handed to me, and I heard it. It was like, this is really good. And, uh, you know, th- there's the beginning of that story where all of a sudden that band started to get traction. But it didn't happen immediately. Nirvana, they put their record out in the It's 1991. So, program, oh, yeah, it's first record, watched. 1991, August. And it starts really slow. Uh, and it starts really slow. That whole fall, it was building, building. They were touring. People would hear it and like it. But it didn't blow up. The next month, Nirvana puts out the record, and in September, they put out the Nevermind record, and within one month, it sold a million copies. It just blew up, you know, boom, really fast. So you have these bands that happen really fast, you have some bands that happen really slow, you never know. Pearl Jam is one of those things where it happened little by little, but, you know, it was a constant where people would hear it and be turned on to it and go, I really like this, to then go, I really love this, and, uh, you know, that, that ended up happening... You know, really, the spring in the next of '92, uh, when that record really sort of blew up. But they did a lot of spots. They
2: would go out and hit like minor markets. They would play anywhere. That was the thing. That was the old. That was the old hustle. If you hit the major markets, yeah, that's great. You could probably come back again the next season, but the next record cycle. But if you go and play the minor markets, like the band Creed, remember those dudes? Those like Catholic rockers, the Christian rocker dudes. Yeah, they, you told me about how their 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 shtick was. They just go to every place twice, man. They play
1: every place twice. Yeah, I think, the key, I think the formula was like in one year you want to hit. You pick like twenty markets or thirty markets around the country, and you figure out where there's a good market. Well, like, say Boston. I mean, Boston's great because you have a lot of colleges, you have a lot of young people. You had uh, some good radio stations who were sensitive to wanting to play new music. You had the press who would write about these things, and you had the retailers who understood, well, the radio's there, the press is there, they're gonna be playing somewhere, so let's stock it, let's take care of it. So all of a sudden, all those pieces would fall together. Then you wanna go to that market four times. You wanna play in a club, a little club on your own. You wanna open for a big band so people who don't know who you are might stumble upon you. Yeah. You want to play an opening for another band. And then after all that, you want to come back and play it on your own again to gather everyone who's been affected and hopefully it'll show up. Um, I mean, it was like Rage Against the Machine. The first tour they played, like, they did 90 people. You know, in each place they would play, like, you know, go down to Philadelphia and see the Dobbs and 90 people were there. But those 90, pe- those 90 people walked out of that show going, Oh my fucking God. I can't believe what I just saw. And they would go tell all their friends, I just saw the best band. You can't even believe how great they were. And next time they came around, they would drag like four or five of their friends Well, go, yo, you really got to go because it's way better than you think. And then, you know, whatever, people started coming and there'd be like 300 people the next one. And those 300 people would walk out and go, holy shit, this is fucking awesome. And then the next show, they'd be like, you know, 700 people. So, It kept building and building and building. That's another band that took a while. It wasn't overnight. It took a bit. And it's all really about touring. And you know this. You know, you go. Well, that was what you taught us. You taught us that,
2: man. That
1: was, I remember you actually going, you guys, if you're good live,
2: play live. You know, accentuate the positive, man. And he goes, that'll get you. I'll sell you more records than anything else. And it did. I mean, in America, we sold a lot on that first record, man. Don't go anywhere. Stay locked on Huey Off The Record.
1: I, I Yeah, and you, you did tour, and you toured me, you too, yeah. and, uh, you know, which, which was such an amazing experience. Like, here's this band that some people know about, but not everyone, but some people know about, and you're playing in stadiums, opening for you 2 not like fourth band opening, like Fall of the Criminals is on, right? You guys open, you do a 45-minute set, and then the DJ comes on, and then... The uh, you two come on and you're playing at all these stadiums Three River Stadium, Giant Stadium, yeah. Arrowhead, St- Arrowhead Stadium, Arrowhead Stadium, I mean, bro. I remember that drive, that was the best, man. New, yeah. York, New York to Kansas City, like three days, and we had a good time.
2: Yeah, that was <laughs> a tour. It was you, me, and George, man, on the tour bus. Just the time three of them, George was the, Kansas, driver, the driver, man. Driver. Yo, so we, we just for people listening in, it, it was an amazing. Road trip, I think it's probably my road trip that I will go, yeah, I did that. Me and Mike, uh, New York City to Kansas City on a Prevo tour bus, slept 12 or whatever. It was just you and me in the back lounge, and then George Hampton, the amazing George Hampton, driving us out there.
1: And 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 George, I would tell George, you know, if you see a barbecue place all the way, let me know. So he would always, hey, am I? He was this, you know, southern gentleman, and he would go, hey, am I? There's a barbecue restaurant coming up in about 15 miles. I would wonder if you wanted to stop there. And, uh, oh, George, you're a hero. And, and he turned me you in. Know, we had some of the best barbecue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. And then your thing was you wanted to wave to America. Yeah. So we <laughs> every car that went by, every truck, you had the, the window open in the back lounge, and you'd be waving the people. Big black and, bus uh, driving down the road. And and uh, I remember initially, because you were supposed to fly up, it was the crew was supposed to meet in Kansas City, and the band was going to fly there. And you just wanted to get the fuck out of New York. You were like, yo, i just got to get out of here. Whatever. Yeah, yeah I was having York. issues. I
2: was having issues with this Chica, man. I was like, you know what? You know, like, I'm, I'm going on tour. So, I'm going to go open up for you
1: too, honey. All right? <laughs> you just so chill. Like, yeah. So I was like, Doug and I'm going to go tomorrow. I'll see you in, in, in Kansas City in a few days. You're going to fly there in a few days. And you're like... Just showed up with the bus was like, "No, dude, I'm going to leave right now with you. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) I know. I
2: just literally hopped on no shit. I think I had like a bag with like maybe like a pair of jeans, two pairs of jeans, two pairs of underwear, two pairs of socks kind of thing. It was definitely, uh, he had a a few wire bearers and, uh, a big, and a big glass
1: bond. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, true.
2: Yo, do you know, but you remember George kept stopping at the Walmart. That's why by the time we got to Kansas City, he had like the illest wardrobe. I looked like, uh. Uh, Tyler Durden or something with my 70s shirts and the polyester flares, man. I was rocking it, that style. It's basically what you
1: could find out yeah. there, you know? Do, uh, do you know but,
2: I mean, I remember back when we first started playing at the Limelight. We were a new band, and we'd go out on stage, and there'd be maybe 2,000 people at some of the gigs because we'd open up for, like, Sugar Hill Gang or Corn or whoever. And then, taking that, I thought I learned a lot about how to, you know, operate on on a stage, you know? And then when we started doing the U2 things... It was like, all right, this is, you got to learn this now, and it was cool because those guys are so cool. They just let us do whatever. They would help us with the lights. Their, their lighting guys would be our lighting guys. You know, it was like no band has ever treated that what, nice, man. Yeah, those guys I'll tell are,
1: you what, you know, you don't know nothing till you toured with you two. Yeah, word say. up, word up. Those and guys are amazing. The, the, listen, the 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 generosity, the love, mm-hmm. the professional, the professionalism. Yeah. The artistic, the artistic um, credibility, um, the 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 the, just everything about the band, those four gentlemen, and the people that they hired to work with them was was so amazing, and it was such a blessing to be able to be part of that and to learn from them, to be inspired by them. Yeah. um, and then just as a fan I mean that's a band I grew up loving to so all of a sudden be like you're know, running around the stadium with a laminate <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and watching them play the best things were the best part of the day was sound check for you 2 and the, the rule was that nobody at all is allowed in the stadium while you 2 were checking because that's what it's about. You sound check. You need your yeah, privacy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So imagine, imagine <laughs> you know, you saw this. The entire arena, that's a stadium. It's a football stadium. It's like 90,000 seats. All of them were empty except for like four of us, and we'd be sitting somewhere, smoking a joint, watching them, and they looked out, and they would see us. <laughs> and, and, they, laugh. and they'd laugh, and, and they'd say stuff on the mic down. like,
2: I remember them going, Huey. How does it sound out there? And I was like, thumbs up at them from the like the cheap seats across the, the stadium. Yeah, those guys were awesome too, man. And To this day, I met mean, spoke to Bono last week, man. And to this day, to they're this
1: still day, still as genius as they were, and loving as they were, absolutely. And um, it, you know, it was a real pleasure and a real honor. Uh, and, and and like you said, it was. It's one of those experiences that in life you just don't forget.
2: Yeah, and you you know know what? They were so classy about how they rolled that it Uh, made me realize that when I started meeting other bands and hanging out with other dudes, that like, wow, you two are like the class act of rock and roll. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other people that are amazing, like the Stones guys are all amazing and stuff. But I'm saying i worked with you two guys. Like, we did that whole big tour, man. Those guys are just super gentlemen. Their whole crew were awesome.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was great. And, you know, they're out they're out there now. They're just, I mean, yeah, it was. By the way, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Okay, you remember driving down to uh, Pennsylvania to do the show uh, on a Sunday, and it was the Puerto Rican Day Parade Oh yeah, in New York City. Oh yeah, yeah. Ooh, that was a good and day. Good day for Puerto We, we got <laughs> to pick you up. We got to pick you up in a van, and you got the Puerto Rican flag, and we drove from New York to Pennsylvania, and you had the Puerto Rican flag waving <laughs> out the window the whole time. That was 1997. Yes. And so that 40 years ago, bro. Puerto Rican Day Parade is is this Sunday or next Sunday. Yeah. So that's 20 years ago that we did that. 20, 20 not 40, Mike. 20.
2: Did I say 40? <laughs> you said 40, man. We'll be saying that in 20 years, but it's only 20,
1: I think. I don't know if you said 40, did you? I thought it sounded I don't like it. My bad. You'll have to. you Somebody right in who's listening to the podcast who has a clue. Me. Uh, not so much, you know, I don't know if a clue. But right. anyway, um twenty it was twenty years ago today, Mr. Bono told the criminals <laughs> to play. <Yeah. laughs> and you know, I, I remember I was talking to those dudes back in the day
2: about it, and it was uh, it was Larry Mullen Jr. who brought the C D to the rest of the guys in the band.
1: Larry Mullen That's Jr. What, was yeah, that he was, was the story. That was the story that Larry heard it and really liked it and brought right. it to the band. The the band heard it and said, We really love this. We want these guys to open for us and uh lovely. Uh, you guys opened the, um, it was most of the East coast dates
2: and we did and Canada stuff with, them.
1: Uh, it, it was, was 16 dates. One of them got canceled because of rain yeah, because yeah. they had the world's largest TV screen in the back of them in 1997, their screen, their TV screen and back of the band playing was the largest ever. But the one thing that was going to keep them from having it work on some nights was if it rained really hard. And I think in D.C. it rained out. They would go up there and all the rigors... These guys they would rig RIG the riggers. Yeah, all the Belgian like, dudes. Yeah, they would were... rig the stage. They rig the stage and they bring everything up and they build the stage and these guys are like death-defying people. I mean, these guys are flying in the air like three hundred feet and plugging things in and making things work. And if they fall down, they're done, man. So these are like brave roadies that are yeah, up there, yeah, yeah. like stuntmen almost. But you know, like professional dudes,
2: out. like professional riggers. I mean, we remember that? Oh, we, yeah. We actually did, when we did all those gigs with them, when they did two shows in a row, they'd have a thing called the Rigger's Arms, which is like this pub like that they'd have on in the stadium somewhere in like the, the lower recesses of the stadium after the gig, because it was a walkaway gig. And we were the band. Remember, we were Mysterious Ways. We were the house band.
1: And we played punk rock versions of U2 songs. You guys rocked it. And, and that was really funny because, once again, that, I think that was U2's sort of way to go. You know, they called it the Riggers, Riggers arm, yeah. the rigorous Ball. And that was their way of paying respect to these guys yeah. who were up there risking their lives for the show. You know what I mean? Like, true, true. Um, and, and it was, you know, once again, like, they're classy guys. They're like, hey, we got a night off. Let's throw a party for... Our peeps, they flew in kegs of Guinness. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. Because they, they,
2: they had their plane, so their plane didn't have to fly to the next city, so they sent the plane back to Dublin to get the Guinness and then come back, man. That's awesome. That's amazing. i that's never,
1: I, I never had Guinness before, and that was the first time I ever had real Guinness poured the right way yeah. from Ireland in an Irish pint glass. And I remember standing with you, and, and Bono walks over like, hey, and I, and I said to him, man, I've never had this before. This is just the best drink I've ever had. I mean, Bono looks at me and goes, you know, when I they give it to pregnant mothers and blood donors. <laughs> and I just thought that was the funniest thing ever. But he was actually telling the truth.
2: Yeah, yeah. They have had lots so many of
1: vitamins and minerals that they would give it to people as something of a nutritious drink
2: yeah and not to mention that like i, I know my, my wife's been pregnant twice and sometimes you could use a, a pint you know it's like one of those things where it's like you know it's been a little bit of a stressy day you know not to well, condone that even, stuff but you know
1: a learning experience uh like I said, for me i was not a big drinker and uh, after being on your tour as well i had a few more beers than i had before and uh you know being able to have uh that authentic of a Guinness experience was was great, and you know Bonto explains it to me. I mean, how how good. good is that?
2: Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he did he did a couple things like when he he like when he joins your hands with somebody else and like looks at everybody and like makes that whole thing with his eyes like he kind of closes his eyes very theatrically. That, that he's a very powerful guy when it comes to that shit, man. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: yeah, love him, yeah. man.
2: Yo, but dude, <clears throat> I remember that when we were you were on the road with us, and you and I every city we'd go to would sit down at the hotel and be like, all right, now how do we get over? How do we get over? And we would go out after the media. We would find the media. And this is
1: 97. So we'd be oh, like... This <laughs> was the best one was the first the first day. So we get to Arrowhead Stadium. Yeah, you and me. Just the Emery, we're there, man. Uh, we're and and, and um, me and you were like walking around. Yeah, I'm like, let's go, like you know, let's go find shit. Let's go find people. Cool. So we're walking around, walking around. And I see the news van. You know, it's the van, it says channel, whatever. Yeah, satellite it's got the satellite truck or whatever,
2: yeah.
1: And it's, got the, and it's got the big antenna, and I look around, and I see the news lady. She's got a light on her, a microphone, and big hair. This is 1997. Yeah. So that was when the news ladies had the big hair. So she's talking to people or whatever, and I walk up to her, and I said to her, Hi, my name is Mike. And you know, tonight there's gonna be ninety thousand people in the audience, but there's only gonna be seven people on stage, and I can get you one of them to do an interview with. And she looked at me like, trying to process this, like, what is this guy talking about? She's like, What? I go, Yeah, I'm with the opening band. You know, you two got four people on stage, we got three people. You wanna talk to the singer guitar player? She's like yeah, that would be good. And next thing you know, you're on the local news. Yeah, you're <laughs> absolute
2: genius. And you know that—that that was the thing too, because you know these guys that would all of a sudden were torn with with you too. It wasn't like we were doing super well up until that point in America. It was like you know, it was doing okay. We were getting some radio love, but it was like early early days going out with you too, and it it was cool because you could see how the country worked, like business wise. You know what I mean? How you could go yeah. after certain. Mar- I mean, also, it's like, yo, we came out of nowhere. People want to hear that story. You were picked by the drummer in the band to be in, you know, to be doing this gig. That's a pretty cool thing.
1: It's an honor to be picked by those guys, especially to you know, open uh, and read a tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a lot of bands to say that, that, you know, you, you, you open a stadium for you, too. Like I said, 90,000 people in the audience, and there's only seven people going to be on stage playing and entertaining, and you were one of them. So, uh, yeah, you talked to the lady with the big hair from the news station and it ended up on the TV and they were cracking up. They loved you. They would talk back to the studio. And they're like, that guy's great. It was really funny. I mean, it was, what, a, what a time. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, one day, one day, I remember I filmed all that and I have it sitting in a briefcase and, uh. One day there will be the movie of the Fun Lovin' Criminals opening for you too in 1997.
2: I, you know what we should actually do, man? We should do like some kind of uh, some music documentary just about that tour. Because I mean, for us, I mean, it does. It's not really necessarily just about the Fun criminal Criminals doing this gig. It's just about musicians like kind of just hanging out on that level for the first time ever. It's trippy, man. I mean, catering and
1: all that kind of stuff, yeah. man. We were like, yeah. and what? And that, Can, and, what that, that? and that was my vibe was like, you know what is it like being out here? Um, most Artistic, people don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. Most people don't know what it's like to be the band that's opening for you too in stadiums. Like I said, 90,000 people every night. There's only seven performers. You're one of them, dude. That's major. And then also the fact is that you were not really a known band then. Some people knew you, but for the most part, you were a new entity, mm-hmm. and the, how does it feel to be up there turning people on to something brand new for the first time? And and you know only you could tell me how it felt to stand there and forty five minutes sing and play guitar and entertain. Uh, so it was it was a real thing. But like I would given about you know five years. And I think I'll, uh, you know, hopefully have that together. But um, well, I know I saw that you, know, you, you put like a you put
2: it together at one point, right? Because I remember seeing something along those lines, and it was like I,
1: I I went and I basically put like a little VHS together for you guys yeah. to just show you, like, hey, this is what it was like, and it was not really organized. It was just like a couple of performances and a bunch of little, you know, jumping around backstage and some interviews. And, you know, be on a plane or a bus or, you know, in a cab or walk-in or a scooter, yeah. uh, you know, backstage in the hotels. And uh, and then, of course, every time we went to uh, a hotel or a crew church place and they had a piano, Huey, you would, you know, you remember, you would go yeah, and, sit yeah. and play the end of Layla. you yeah. play that piano outro of Layla. Which like from, from Goodfellas. Goodfellas, Goodfellas, man, yeah, and, and that whole thing when they, you know, they play that 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 outro of Goodfellas, the piano outro. I was really impressed. I was always impressed because, you know, I'm gonna tell you, you're not the obvious rock star, dude. Okay, I, I, and, and and especially when you don't know you, and it's 1995, and I'm standing there in the studio, and you know, you were signed, and you're making a record and you had your guitar, and it was between takes, and I'm talking, and all of a sudden, you did the eruption solo, from Van Halen, and I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, you were like, nah, 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 nah. and you did it note for note, my mouth dropped open, I'm like, who the fuck is this guy, is playing that music, that fucking well, and I look and I go, you mean you play that well guitar also, you're like, oh, I love that shit, I'm like, Get the fuck out of here. It was really amazing. So we'd be everywhere on tour. And once again, you would sit down at the piano and play this beautiful piano thing, The End of Layla by Derek and the Dominoes Eric Clapton. And I was amazed. I'm like, you know that? You could play it that well? Oh my gosh. It was always, always impressed. You would always surprise this shit at me, dude. Be like, you know, you understand that's great and all, and then you do something. I'm like, fuck, you could play the eruption solo? Nah, you're, you're unbelievable. You know? no. well, you're uh, you're, un, you're unbelievable, too,
2: brother. You are unbelievable, too, man.
1: You yeah, know, I got my moments. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: love you, man. Yo, check this out. I remember I was. I was you you called me up one day. You were like, "Yo, let's go see Black Sabbath." I was like, "Yeah, let's," because I figured they were playing some evening. You're like, "No, they're playing in Jersey today." And I was like, "What? Well, yeah, the Pacific Art? Where
1: was it? Where is it?" Down it in- was uh, it, um, the uh, it, it's oh man, it's the place in Jersey, the outdoor place. I it, forget what they call it. I might remember later. Yeah, but it's that outdoor place. It's that, you know the shed. It's outdoors, and it was I think it was Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. Yeah, and a bunch of bands. Yeah. And it was, yeah, the Oz Fest. So I'm like, yo, dude, come out. You'll love this shit. Okay, cool. So we go out, and it's like Judas Priest, and they just kill it. And it was Black Sabbath, and they just kill it. And uh, I was <laughs> they, they just I fucking killed, killed it. it. They really killed it. And then we were walking around backstage and ran up to Sharon Osbourne. And I saw Sharon. She's like, oh, Michael Schnapp, how are you? Good to see you. And I introduce you. She's like, oh, Huey, I know who you are. Very nice to meet you. And Sharon, just, she's a wonderful lady. She was always yeah, man. just too sweet, too nice. She's very nice to me. And Sharon's great because Sharon is one who, she's a tough cookie. You don't mess with her family and you don't mess with her business because uh, you will learn you will pay the price. But if you're on her side and you're helping her and you're doing the right thing, she's wonderful. I mean, she, she, loves she you, man. she's you yeah, I mean, something else very much. Because some people would be like, oh, she's a bitch and she's that. And I'm like, well, why? Because you lied to her. They're like, well, yeah, but. I'm like, no buts. When you lie to somebody, you open up yourself to the wrath of that person. So don't fucking lie to them. You know, be truthful. Somebody would rather have the truth, the shitty truth yeah. that a puffed up lie. You know, she would ask me a question and I could lie to her but in two weeks she'll figure it out and she'll fucking punch me in the head. <laughs> when, you her, when you tell her the truth, she will forever be on your side and I learned that's it's like, yo, you got to, you know, I was always more of a truthful person but in the music business sometimes that's a little funky you get abused for telling the truth yeah. but Ultimately, listen, you got to be honest with people. you got to tell them the truth. And she was one that would react when you were truthful and helpful. She was your biggest ally, biggest friend, you know. and well, She, uh, I mean, she loved she,
2: When I saw her, when I saw her she came up to you, she loved you. She gave you big old hugs and stuff like that. She was happy to see you, man. And that's great to see because everybody, the, like you used to take me around too. You took me to a Grateful Dead concert in Philadelphia. They, we got the T-shirt that was spelled wrong. I mean, it was awesome.
1: <laughs> we were hanging out backstage. My buddy, who was it? Mike Scoggino got soul. Yeah, God rest his soul, yeah, right? rest his soul and, man. Yeah. And uh, Kenny Viola, who's still rocking. Yeah, Kenny. Uh, they were they were doing the Grateful Dead security, and they're my boys. And they're like, just yeah, you want to come to a show? Come to a show. And I just thought, what like? You were funny because my vibe was like, I know you love all kinds of music, but. At some point, you were a club guy and, and, and you know, you were, play, you were playing a certain type of music and maybe you hadn't seen everything live. So you were great to bring to a show because you're musically adept. You like the social connotations of going to a concert. And you know the magic of watching a show and how it can really change your life. So I got psyched to bring you to shit that I thought, This guy is never going to go to this on his own. You're not going to go to a Motorhead show on your own. You're not going to go to a Grateful Dead show on your own. So if I can bring you to those, it's great. And and you really got it. You know, you really figured it out and realized why you were there and what the deal was with these things. And it was a lot of fun to go to some of those shows, uh, you know, because you never knew it was going to happen. It
2: was crazy, man. I, you know, it just anybody listening is going, "Holy shit, he was the fucking luckiest guy in the world having a friend like you." And it's true, man. I mean, <laughs> we, I mean, you did, you did, you you took us to all the nice restaurants in New York, and, and that was back when you had a, an expense account with EMI. You, you were just like, "Yeah, come on out. We're going to the <laughs> Palm. <laughs> come on out. We're going to Mister Show, Doctor, whatever Nobu,
1: whatever." I'll tell you what, man. It was nice to work at a label, a company who would do good things. And at some points, I got some good things done for me. They paid me some good money. My expense account, my expense account was, was was so much. I think it was more than I would make in so many years after that, you know? So it was like I had all this money to spend, so I was like, who better to spend it on than Huey and Steak, you know? And so, <laughs> well, you and me, I mean,
2: it was. we got to understand, like the other guys in the band, like Fast, he hung out every once in a while. But you and me, we'd hang out like every fucking night, though. That was the thing. We'd call each other up around like 8 o'clock going, yeah, we'll meet around 1030. And that was like the move until I until I pretty much got married, I think, man. It was like every night, man.
1: All the time, all the time. And, you know, what's better than bringing your, your pal to the Palm Restaurant and getting steaks, and uh, you know, it being on EMI, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and you know, later on, <laughs> later on, I got my my you face. EMI, by the way, by the way, you know what EMI uh, stands for? What's that? Every meal imaginable. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but dude, I remember they used to have the caricatures on the wall at the Palm, and I was like, man, one day I wish I could have my face on the wall. Yo, I had my face on the wall, man. Me and my wife.
1: I was so proud of you because that was crazy. Yeah, one I'm day up. I come, I come. Year, a few years ago I come I visit you in London yeah they used to have a palm out there and they had a palm there and you took me there and I walked in and you go look over on the wall and I look and there's like there's you and your wife and fastest wife and I'm going like yeah word man I go you gotta be fucking kidding me they put you on the wall the palm here and I know your popularity so it wasn't like I didn't understand it but you were a starving musician yeah okay? you were, you literally literally shady, how skinny you I was no fucking you had no money. I mean, no fucking money. And I would bring you to the Palm, and you had, you know, these dreams. And to see that the dream was was carried out, and then I'm leaning in the Palm, and you're on the wall. I mean, it was like that full circle thing. <laughs> and it was unbelievable.
2: Well, dude, man, it's it's been a pleasure, and it still continues to be a pleasure. But I, I, one of the things that I always thought was cool was, since we started hanging out, man, which I—it's what—it's got to be like twenty-three years, twenty-four years, whatever.
1: We never. Nineteen ninety-five. I signed you, yeah. And then I remember we, yeah, we hang, and a lot of it was you had no money, you just had no money, and we would be on the phone. I'm like, "What do you do?" you're like, eh, no, <laughs> "I'm doing you know, like, nothing. I'm so watching I'm like, like, my dog you know, grow. <laughs> I'm watching my dog like, sugar grow." You don't have money for a pack of smokes, man. I was like, "Yo, no, dude." Come over. I yeah. got you. Yeah, yeah. And he'd come over here, and here's a pack of cigarettes. We'd smoke some weed. We'd watch TV. We'd watch The Odd Couple and fucking crack <laughs> up at that stuff. <laughs> I love and, that show. And, and, I love it. And you, were, and, and you were literate, so I would lend you books. I remember you were writing Bear Hug, and you didn't have all the lyrics. And you borrowed a book from me, The Westies, that course had lent you. Yeah, me. yeah. And you took it home. And then... Three days later, you had the rest of the lyrics and some of the, you know, lyrics were about the Westies. And I'm like, oh, this fucking guy is writing, he's writing songs, being influenced by, by books. That's really cool. I don't know of other people that do that, you know. And uh, I was very impressed with your literary skills. And, uh, you know, between your literary skills and your social skills uh, and your scamming skills. The one night we were hanging out. The Paramount Hotel. <laughs> the Allison James guys are there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was I a great know, night. I know those guys from a couple of years ago. So they're like, oh, my Schrapp, what's up? Allison James, guys, what's up? My guy is Jerry, Mike, you know, uh, Sean is all good. Yeah. And, Jerry, Jerry's
2: um, great, man. Jerry's the dude. man. Uh, <laughs> He's
1: exactly. the those dude. guys are real, real, real awesome. Yeah. And I said, hey, we're going over to the tunnel. Uh, after after this, you want to come, cool, so we all pile in the car, we go in the tunnel, and we go in there, and the tunnel is just closing, it's like four in the morning, and all these guys want to do is drink, and you're like, I'll be back in a minute, so you disappear, and they're like, kind of like, yo, we, need, we gotta get some booze, gotta get some booze, it's like 20 after four, and I'm like, just wait a minute, you'll be right back, and they're like, Nah, 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 we gotta get out of here, we gotta, we need booze, we need booze, we need booze, we need booze, and they split, they went, you know, to find booze, and I'm like, you guys, it's 24, there's nowhere you're gonna find booze anywhere in New York, you can't get it, it's not allowed, the law come down, no booze, no one's coming with booze, there's no booze, just wait for you, don't worry, and they're like, they don't know you, and they're like that, nah. so they split, like, two minutes later, you come walking around the corner with a case of beer oh, over each arm on your shoulders, Like, hey, where did they go? And I'm laughing like, you know, they they wouldn't believe me. In in all of New York, you can't get a drink right now. And you're rolling around with two cases of beer in a fucking nightclub. And I'm like, this guy is funny. Oh, my God. I have jokes. But, you know,
2: I mean, I saw Jerry after that, and uh, we were talking about that, man. I was like, yo, I had you guys covered. You got to trust in me, man. Believe in me. It was it was good. Well, you, you know, you you learned me some then. I was like, oh, this is great. Good times, good times. Now, dude, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bungalow Eight. I know that we, it's still, you know, it's still the spot because Number Eight's still happening, right? The Amy's still doing that.
1: Let's talk about the Bungalow Eight <laughs> magical days. Yes, you brought okay. me into that place, yo. I walked in. We were hanging out hard, and one night you're like, "Let's go to Bungalow 8. This was the club that you couldn't get into. I wasn't even going to try to go. There's no way. It's like, there's no way I'm getting into that place. That's where all the biggest celebrities go. I mean, the celebrities go to certain places, and then the real celebrities would go to bungalow aid. So I'm like, there's no way I'm ever going to go to this place. So one night, you're like, oh, let's go there. So we roll up, we get to the door, and Armin's standing there, this guy who is just unbelievable. He's a he's a piece of work. He's magic in his own way. <laughs> he's he's a magical
2: and, door person of old New York nightclub styles, man. No, he was he was very yeah, flamboyantly yeah. him.
1: Oh yeah, and, and uh, you know no one could be him. He was he's oh. a part of a kind guy. Yeah, just very cool. Uh, and you brought me into this place, and it was like I, my my thought was we went there, and I think I never left. I mean, it was like <laughs> after that night, you would take me there enough, and, and then we just hung all the time. And we became the wallpaper of that place. We were you know, on the. We we
2: had drinks on the menu. It was like an Uncle Mike, which was an Amstel light that was held in ice for
1: ten minutes. Right? It was, yeah. It was it was ice? Yeah. It was the Uncle Mike was an uh, an ice cold Amstel light, <laughs> and and the, the, the Huey was. I forgot what it was, whatever you were drinking at the time. No summer drink, drink, it was
2: summer drink, winter drink. It was it was it was summer no, drink. Was, summer was, drink was uh was on, on the rocks and the winter it was like drink was Stoly in a rocks in a but it said Stoli in, in a rock
1: in a man glass which <laughs> what you it, The yeah.
2: glass. It's a man glass. man glass, because when I was a bartender, that's what we'd call it. If you have a scotch, you would have a scotch in a man glass, right? Like a glass, not like a little highball is what they'd call it, right? It was a rocks glass and a highball, but we call it a man glass. So you get yeah. either you get like a, a stoli on the rocks in a man glass.
1: Yeah, so like we ended up, I think we ended up on the menu, and uh, I remember at some point I was DJing at Bungalow Eight, and I'm up in the yeah. Well, I mean, suffice it to say, we took over, it. we
2: were there for like years, man. I mean, hanging out all the time. We never,
1: but Amy we was never our not. girl.
2: Amy, Amy, we'd, we'd be hanging out with like. Mick Jagger and George Clooney and be looking at each other like, what are we doing here, man? (laughs) Like, what are we doing here with these people?
1: The amount of people, heavy names, great hangs... Yeah, man. uh, ...that we did there was was unbelievable. Um, At some point, I, I don't like to talk about the people and what we did because it's a privacy thing. And I'll tell you why that place is magic. Because... They had a no photograph policy, yep. so when yep. people were famous, went in there, they knew that they were getting a break from the pap's. They knew we're going to be in there a couple of hours. We can hang out. We can have a good time. We don't have to be uptight. We don't have to be looking for photographs, mm-hmm. people, and, and you know, and, and be ambushed and all that. And Amy made people feel comfortable. And if you were there. You were in her living room and you were protected by her. Yeah. And she's a very protective. She's very loving and nurturing and protective. And if you're her people, well, she's looked out for you. So when you were there, you were allowed to hang out and have fun and not be uptight and worried. And, you know, that was just around the time before on the cell phone cameras. So it wasn't like everyone had a cell phone and a camera, you know? So you could really enforce the no photo law. And that's what made it special. I mean, you know, God bless you for bringing me there and for Amy for, you know, adopting me, adopting us and, and giving us those yeah. times. And uh, like like I said, I'd be in the DJ booth and they go, what do you want to drink? And i go, bring me a bucket of me.
2: Yeah, a bucket of me. And they bring six Amstels. We used to joke around and they're so hard. But the th- you know what the thing was? And, and to this day, I see people that used to work there and they, they, they're really happy to see me. It was because... I used to be a bartender. I used to be a bar back, you know. That was like the busboy of the bar, you know. And I know what tips are like, man. So I used to tip dudes and chicks. I used to tip everybody. I tip airline pilots.
1: You, I still do. You were funny. You were funny about that also because we always get the free beer. Right. Or the free drink. Yeah. And then you would like throw, you would, you would throw a 20 at them or a hundred or whatever it was. And you'd go, yo, I found this
2: on the floor. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> yeah, I know that <laughs> That's my, that's my line. I found this on the floor, guys. I got put it behind the bar, you know, cause I, cause, yeah, cause after I a while, cause so much I'm like, yo, you're a fucking screen, bro. <laughs> no, but you gotta look at this way. They don't want the, I, you'd feel uncomfortable with somebody every, that came every day you considered your friend would give you money for a drink that you'd yeah, give me definitely. anyway for free anyway you know what I'm saying but I knew that they were working and I respected them enough to know that you know that's that's how they that you deal with it you know when you, you don't make want to make people feel bad man you know I don't want to make the people states,
1: feel bad in the states and I know it's different around the world but in the states all the people in the service industries they live on tips and you knew that, and you went out of your way to make sure that they were going to live. You know, Not, not so much them. over here. I'll tip
2: somebody, and they'll think I'm hitting on them, man. It's embarrassing. And then my wife's like, what do what you doing? Why are they looking at you like a weirdo? I was like, I tipped them. I, I, I fell back. Remember we tipped the airline pilot? He put me up in the cockpit. That was great.
1: That was hysterical. You know, we get on this plane, this whole, um, it was going from Belgium to Scotland. We did a show in Amsterdam. You guys got off at midnight. We drove... So the hotel, it took four hours to the hotel. We get to the hotel at four in the morning, checked in at the Belgian airport and said, Okay, you gotta be up at eight on the flight, okay, so you guys got two hours sleep. We get on the airplane and they announced, they said, Yo, we gotta we gotta bring a criminal back that was Funny enough, I'm at the phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the ironic they part, gotta, man. they gotta transport a criminal back that they wouldn't let in this in into Belgium. So they needed somebody to up their seat. So you're sitting next to Fast and you raise your hand and they said, Okay, cool. So they brought you into the cockpit, then they put the criminal next to Fast <laughs> <in your laughs> He, was like, he looked at me <laughs> like, what the fuck, man? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go up to the cockpit, dude, because I tipped this dude. You rolled up, You rolled up there, you're smoking cigarettes in the cockpit. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, the guy was cool. He goes, you can smoke up here, we'll keep the windows open while we taxi. I was like, great. And then, so that was the time. so this is a whole, like, day and a half of, so we get, we finally get to Scotland. We get in the van. We go right to the festival. You guys are playing tea in the park, you know, like four yeah. in the afternoon or whatever. So um, we go to uh, um, we, we go to the festival. They say, okay, we're going to drop your luggage off in your rooms. You'll see it later. Cool. So we don't worry about that. And then we go into the festival, and you guys played, and it was fucking great. And then walk you over to the dressing room, and you're in the dressing room, and the orders are – we don't want to see anybody for 20 minutes because we're changing. We're sweaty musicians. We just played. We're going to change our clothing, and then we'll come out. So I'm I'm designated to stand there in front of the dressing room and tell everyone to go fuck off, you know, in various ways. So I'm standing there, and uh, I see this guy coming down the road, this little walkway, and I'm looking. I go, oh, there's some guy, and he's, he's got a boom box. And then he gets closer, and I go, oh, shit, there's Joe Strummer walking down with a boombox and I'm like thinking dude this is fucking awesome Joe Trump is going to walk right by me on this path like that's that's rock star enough you know all what I'm right, saying right. and Joe gets to like right where we are and he turns and he comes right up to me and he's like hey I'm here to say hi to the fellas and I look at, <laughs> I look, and I look at the door and it's like maybe 10 minutes after so you guys are still maybe half dressed in there I don't know And I'm thinking, ah, this is going to be fucking genius. And I walk up, and I open the door, and I go, hey, guys, I got a visitor for you. And you all look at me, like, really pissed off, like, who the fuck are you walking in? We're changing. And Joe pops up. And it was like the three of your faces change from, like, I want to kill Mike Schnapp because he's walking someone into my dressing room, and I'm half-dressed, to seeing Joe Strummer in front of you going, Oh, my God, it's our, it's our hero, Joe Strummer, yeah, he here, here. Yeah. And he didn't leave your side the whole night. In fact, at some point, he said to me, we're going to go see Gomez on the other side of the uh, festival. So I walked up to Joe's guy, and I said, hey, Huey's going to walk up to see um, Gomez. And the guy says to me, oh, dude, Joe's with Huey the whole night. He's, I'm like, there we go, party's on. Yeah, and we hung out with Joe Strummer. The whole night. Yeah. I mean, the best guy ever. And you developed a great friendship with him. And he really loved you. And every time I would see him in New York, he was just really sweet. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm like, Joe Strummer knows my name. This is really crazy. It's insane. Uh, He he was Joe Sr., man. Joe Sr., man. Joe Sr., God bless, you know. And uh, what a a great guy. What a great, great, great guy. Taught us, another guy taught us spot, you know, just be yourself, do your thing. Yo,
2: you know Uh, that his, 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 uh, daughter, that girl Liza, was at that gig. I met Liza there, man. And I did that, That's I, right. and I That's produced... The,
1: the wife of the, the daughter were there the whole time. Yeah, up, yeah,
2: yeah, loose yeah, and Liza. And, and I, I produced a, a record for her, not really too long ago, man. It's a good record, too. She's talented.
1: I love how that came full circle
2: also, you know? As I'm sitting in my office, I always have a, I have a picture of Joe, always, wherever I'm at, in my offices. And I got a picture of Joe looking at me right now, man. An old picture. I think Blush gave me a bunch of them. A bunch of pictures. No, was it? I don't know who gave them to me. I think someone. Because they're like.
1: Maybe Baby Bob Baby or Bob
2: Yeah. You know, I don't know, man. Because it, it's weird. Because they're all like uh, Xeroxes, man. Like color Xeroxes. They're, oh, uh, these, But I have like 50 of them. Like someone just gave me a whole folder of pictures of The Clash. And I always pick a couple good pictures of Joe and hang it where, I'm, where my desk is. And I got one looking at him now, man. That dude was just completely amazing, man. When you meet men like that in the world, it's like, aside from him being absolute hero of mine growing up and, you know, all that, man. And then meeting him's like, you know, next, next level. But as a man, he was awesome, man. He was a really squared away guy, man. We can all aspire oh, yeah. to be anywhere like him, man. Super solid, super yeah. solid guy. Yeah. Yo, you know that crazy story that Bob Gruen, speaking of Bob Gruen, told me? We were hanging out with Joe one night, this early on, this maybe like late 90s or something, and... We're at some, I think we might have been at Amen at, at Walker, Eamon Doran's uptown. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At some lock-in, and it was late, man. And I came out of the bar with Bob Gruen, and he just reaches in his, his jacket and pulls out some sunglasses. I'm like, what is up with you guys? Because Joe did the same thing. They're all, like, just popping sunglasses. I'm like, we, I didn't plan to be out, man. And he's like, yo, when you hang out with Joe, bring sunglasses. And it was the smartest thing he hey, told me.
1: I'll tell you what that was. That was the... Um when, when Joe played five nights at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, I think it was in like 2001 or something, okay. or 2000, and he played five nights, and after every night, he'd go out, and you'd go out for the whole night. And the veterans <laughs> the veteran knew, knew, they understood that if you hang with Joe Strummer, hang until dawn, you hang until sunup, because Joe is not going home when it's dark, he's going home the next day. And if you were smart you would have sunglasses. You know who taught me that? That was Doctor Revolt. <laughs> Revs. Yeah, the doctor Dr. Revs. And it's and it's funny because you'll see every once in a while on my on my Instagram feed, I'll post a picture of the Joe the Joe Strummer mural. If you look it up Joe Strummer Mural, it's in New York City. Yeah. It's on the corner of Seventh Street and Avenue A, on the side of the Niagara Park, which used to be the Wawa Yeah,
2: King Kings back in the
1: day. Dr. Well, yeah, Dr. Ravol painted a mural of Joe Strumper. So what I'll do sometimes is I go over to Ray's Candy Store over there. Yo, uh, yo, why do you still like go out. to Raise?
2: Why do you still go to Ray's Candy Store? You get the fruit fly juice,
1: man. No, it's bad. I get the I get the lime, the cherry lime Ricky. Oh gosh. And, and then I walk and then I walk over and I say hi to Joe. And I drink, the, I drink my Cherry Lime Ricky with Joe Strummer over there, and I hang out for a minute. I and, saw that the other day.
2: I like that a lot, man. I think that's cool. That's the thing. I mean, one of the things I miss about being in New York all the time is those things. But whenever I get back, the great thing about you, Uncle Mike, is I, I didn't talk about the car initially, but we used to drive around New York City in an Eldorado, a 1976 Eldorado Cadillac. You know, yep, con-
1: seventy-six Eldorado convertible. Yeah, man. They paid me a little. T- they paid me a little too much money in EMI, so I said, "Oh fuck, I'm gonna buy a car." So i had like five thousand dollars. I buy this car, and it's a little dented up and a little funky, which is good because I can't have a perfect car in New York. Yeah, New no, York it was, cars. but it
2: was like really, really nice. It was like it wasn't perfect, but like you say, you don't want a perfect. You don't want a perfect car in New York City. You'll be pissed off all the time.
1: Exactly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We had a great time driving around. We drive out to the beach. We drive over to Kosciuszko Bridge, which, by the way, July eleventh, July they're going to blow up the old Kosciuszko Bridge. What? They built a new. They built a new bridge over there. When do they do that, of, so they're blowing up the old one. Oh no! They do a whole
2: of thing. Oh man, I, I think I might be there, man. I might be there for that. Yeah, well, I, yeah, July eleventh they're doing it. So if
1: you're in town, we'll uh, I'll be up at the we'll Cape. Five, I, think. Uh, I think I'll think i be on the Cape. Um, I'll be I'll be probably just back from Spain uh, around then, I and mean, then I get back like the twenty Yeah.
2: So, dude, man, I, I know a lot of people know you as as the master of uh, music and stuff because the DJ stuff. But yo, you're also acting and stuff now, man.
1: Interestingly enough, you never know where life takes you. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, the music stuff and Bob Gruen and my friend Steve Hirsch from high school all sort of intersected into something in which now I'm going back to Spain and I'm going to be in my third movie. So uh, I'll tell you the story in a half a second. Right now, let me see. I'm walking around my apartment. There's a Motorhead poster, there's Ozzy backstage. Oh, here's a phone room of criminals. Poster, one Fun Criminals record, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think about eight gold Fun Criminals records on my wall. But you know what's also on my wall is the hubcap. Oh, dude, the hubcap Cadillac. from the caddy. Yeah, the hubcap from the caddy. And, um, You know, it also made an
2: appearance on the first record. Was it the first record or the smooth version of, uh, I Can't Get With That?
1: It was both. I mean, basically, the, uh, the Cadillac was, uh, it was on the first EP, yeah. and then we we were trying to, for, for the album, we were trying to get a photo of you guys for the album, and, like, every photo session you guys did, like, we didn't like, you know, for some reason, you know how that goes, you do one, and you look at it, and everyone's got a reason why they don't love it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah and so we were driving around we had I forgot who the photographer was it was this uh, this Asian gentleman who was in the front seat with me and you three guys were in the back of my car and we were driving around the lower east side and I just kept passing joints back to you guys like chill out chill out chill out so it was like a car ride around the lower east side smoking joints in a Cadillac convertible and at some point that ended up being the, uh, the, the 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 cover of the album, you know, like amazingly so. It was not destined. It was like some weird random photo shoot that wasn't supposed to be the album cover. That ended up, you guys are like, yo, that's fucking perfect. We're like, really? Like, yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at it now. I have it
2: on my desk, out here, man. I have the, the 20th anniversary box, man. It's actually pretty cool, man. Yeah, that photo is pretty awesome, man. You know what's really cool is that dude Matt Weber, the photographer, who's the taxi driver guy. Yeah, he has amazing images, man. Amazing.
1: Yeah, you guys got some good photos from some good people. I mean, Gruen shot you guys, and yeah. who yeah. was the fashion guy? Dalen. I mean, you <laughs> Dalen, cool cool man,
2: Dalen, man, Dalen.
1: Do uh, you remember? You remember the photo session down on Wall Street and. They hired a makeup person for you. You know who that was? That ended up being Linda Ramon. That was Joey. I mean oh, Johnny wow. Ramone's wife. Yeah, who was, uh, who was a stylist. <laughs> yeah, she was cool, man. She still is cool, man. You yeah. know, yeah, she was yeah, she's a cool lady, you know. Dude, yo, so but, uh, yeah, I got the frisbees hanging on the wall, but but hold on, one right now. I got to do this. You're gonna hear something. You hear that? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the hubcap from the Cadillac from the Cover of Your Record. <laughs> right I got rid of, I sold the car, but I kept the hubcap.
2: So, uh, <laughs> yo, yo, your car now is pretty awesome though, right? Did you get it fixed? Because last time I was there, you had that little thing on the fender from that crazy almost killing you shit.
1: I still got that little thing on the fender, although so they, they tweaked it a little bit, but still, it's a 1969 Dodge Dart custom um, that that when I was driving uptown, a, an 18-wheeler, Went into me and ripped the fender apart, so uh, I got to get that fixed. But otherwise, Sammy over at Custom Sammy's Custom Auto in Gordon City Park, he, he keeps it rocking. And uh, we so speaking of the cars, I got to go. I got to leave the car somewhere in a secret location for the next seventeen days on Monday because uh, Monday I'm going to Spain. I'm going to a place called Almeria, yeah. and I'm going to be part of the filming of a movie called The Bounty Killer and uh it's a spaghetti western and so how do i end up in a spaghetti western playing the deputy sheriff well (laughs) it's a long story but funny this is a podcast man you can tell the story i want to hear it so the um i get a call from my friend steve hirsch high school friend of mine dear friend punk rock buddy lifelong loyal pal And he's working on some um, music documentary about Johnny Thunder. So he goes, Do me a favor. I got these Spanish guys coming over. We want to have a meeting with Bob Gruen about using some of his stuff. Okay, cool. So I call Bob up. Bob's awesome. He goes, Yeah, I'll come down and have lunch with you guys. Cool. So I meet Bob down at the restaurant, and my friend Steve's there. And the two Spanish guys come walking up this guy, Danny Garcia and Cesar Mendez. And they come walking down the street, and they see me, and they start laughing. They go, yo, dude, great beard. And I'm like waiting for them to go, yo, Rick Rubin, you know, because that's usually what happens. <laughs> well, you got, I remember you got Arthur Bakerd one time. You used to get Rick I Rubin all the Arthur time. Baker'd. I did, man. Arthur's still down in Florida, man. He's rocking. In fact, he was going to see Tears for Fears and Holland Oaks with a friend of mine the other night. And I said, yo, tell him. I said, hi. I met him with you. He, he took us to that restaurant over there. And yeah, you know, man, he's so,
2: awesome. Well, be, Arthur he, Baker's my man. I, I spoke to him today, man. He's awesome. He's awesome. He's a guy's a great guy, so um, oh, yeah. So you used to get Rick Rubin a lot because you have a beard,
1: but anyway. So the dude said, So these guys come walking down the street and they see me, they laugh, they go, The beard, and I go, Yeah, and they go, Yo, we don't we not only make uh rock documentaries, um, because these guys did the the rise and fall of the clash. They were in the middle of making looking for Johnny about Johnny Thunders, mm-hmm. uh, and then since made another one called Sad Vacation about sin and Nancy, and now they're working on the Steve Bader's documentary, Rock Doc. So they said, we don't only do Rock Docs, we do Spaghetti Westerns, and yo, if you had that red Union suit underwear on and your hat sideways you'd be totally right, perfect for a character in our western. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Because I hear enough shit in my life. And I <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'm about to, to hold off and punch these
2: kids, man, and fucking tell me how you should be a, in a fucking movie.
1: Yeah, you never, you never think it. the wildest dreams. And it's, and, you know, so we know actors and it's a craft, you know, and I never studied the craft and I never thought oh, I'm going to be an actor and I, I even don't, I'm not an actor, I'm just some guy who played some things in some movies, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, no, I hear actors, I hear actors are like, you know, Dean Winters, who was our buddy, who really, he studied the craft his whole life, and mm-hmm. he is an actor, you know, and he really, that's what he does, and he takes it seriously. Yeah. So, these guys were like, yo, you want to be in our, so next thing you know, about three months later, they go, yo, you want to be in our movie? Okay. They fly me over to Spain, I DJ a uh, film festival, and then I ended up staying there for like three weeks. And... Um, they uh they said just bring the red underwear. I bring the red underwear. They put <laughs> the hat on. What is, that, is this? Is this a porno or what,
2: man? With the red underwear, dude.
1: No, you ever see the the the, the, the it's called the union suit. Yeah, I know, yeah, like, I know what
2: you're talking about. But that's what they yeah, wanted you with put, the beard and hat thing running around.
1: Yeah. So uh they they bring me in there. They put me in. I look in the mirror and I go, Yo, you're right. You guys saw something I never saw a I, I never saw a Western guy in my face when I looked in the mirror. These guys, they saw that. <laughs> so, so I'm in the desert for three weeks running around in this long, flannel, hot underwear, cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, suspenders, waving a fake gun around. You know, I never did that before. And so these guys made this movie, and it's called Six Bullets to Hell, right? Yeah. Six Bullets to Hell, and they did it as an homage to the original spaghetti westerns that were done by Sergio Leone in in uh, in Europe in the mid '60s, Sergio Leone, an Italian director producer, uh, wanted to do westerns, but they couldn't afford to go to the states and do them. So they figured out a recipe: you fly Clint Eastwood and you fly Lee Van Cleef to Italy. You do all because that's where they were from. Uh, the, the Italian guys. You do all the indoor scenes at some studio in uh, in Italy. Then they went to the southeast of Spain in a place called Almarea in a, in a town called Tabernas. And they built these old west towns to look like the American southwest western towns that you would see because the terrain in the southeast of Spain is exactly like the American Southwest. So all of a sudden they built these cowboy towns in 1964 and they filmed fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. The good, the bad, the ugly, once upon a time in the West over there. And they basically, they were called spaghetti Westerns because the Italian guys put it together. So Danny and Caesar live around here. They know these Western towns and they figure You know what? We can do that also. We love these movies. They're, you know, they're total, it's a total homage to these. We love these movies. We want to make one too. So they put it together. They brought uh, Tanner Beard and Russell Cummings and Ken Lucky over from the States. And they all teamed up and and, uh, they they made this movie, Six Bullets to Hell, which you could actually go right now onto iTunes or Google Play and you could buy the movie and you could watch it and uh, I played the deputy Johnny Green. uh, (laughs) deputy Johnny Green. The deputy Johnny Green, and it was really an incredible learning experience, and just an experience in general. It's something that I never grew up thinking I would do, could do, should do, and next thing you know, I'm running around the desert in Western gear, you know, playing cowboys, and it was very funny. And the fact that they put the movie together in a real great way, with great music. There's a couple of any or more Company songs that they've licensed, and then some of the actors, uh, Aaron Stielstra, uh, one of the actors, is a musician. and He put a lot of the music in there as well. And uh, it's just, it's a wonderful movie. Then about uh, about two years after, that was 2013, then in 2015, they had me back, and we did another movie. It's called The Price of Death. And once again, a Spaghetti Western, and um, your boy, Nick, from Alabama 3, uh, Nick Reynolds, right? Yeah. He is uh, in, He's one of the characters in the movie as well. By the way, you know, his grandfather was one of the great train robbers. Really? I didn't know that. The, yeah, you know, the great train robbery, it's a very famous thing in England. The great train robbery, you know, legendary thing. Yeah, his, when his, the train his got robbed. I think his father or uncle or grandfather, whatever it was, um, robbed was, the robbed the Those the main guys. Those right. the main guys. Also, another guy that's in there that you might know. You remember the movie Rude Boy from The Clash? Yeah. So the, the guy who played Rude Boy, Ray Gange. Ray Gange. Wow. Is in the movie as well. We're going back uh, next week to Spain for three weeks to shoot another movie, and I believe Nick's going to be there. Uh, Nick Reynolds, and I believe Ray Gange is going to be there as well. Wow. This
2: is a great part one, because we should definitely talk on the weekly. Now, I mentioned we were going all over the place. That was pretty cool, right? Uncle Mike had to take a call, but I'm sure we're going to be doing part two of that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so please stay tuned for that. So continuing the music theme, but bringing it back to the UK side of the pod. Next week, I'm speaking with legendary drum and bass, producer, DJ, and label boss, DJ Die. Now, this guy was one of the original members of Represent back in the day with Ronnie Size and won the Mercury Prize in 97 for their debut new forms. Definitely one for all you drum and bass heads and all you music heads out there. He talks about how Bristol came on and how he got in. And, like, one of those things, man, it's just an awesome conversation. And don't forget, y'all, rate, review, and subscribe to the pod. It helps us work on the algorithm in our favor because I don't really know what the algorithm does when it's not in our favor, but I'm sure it's not good. Yo, So thank you very kindly in advance for the five stars. And until next week, everybody, stay classy.